episode four of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found inside a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showered, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. Here in season one, we're focusing on ethanol extraction and post-processing, with each episode digging deep into a particular stage in that process. The shows are released in an order that follows the progress of material through a lab as it makes its way from cultivar to concentrate. First, let me take a minute to thank all the new listeners that have poured in over the last week. The show went from me being stoked every time I'd get a listener or two, who were probably my friends that I sent links to, to absolutely blowing up over the last few days. Putting the show together has taken a lot of hard work, and seeing the metrics go nuts makes it all 100% worthwhile. So a very sincere and heartfelt thank you from me to all of you for tuning in. Now if I can talk you guys into subscribing and rating and reviewing the show, it'll help me book awesome guests for you in the future. Last week on The Modern Extractor, we had Adam Chambers on from Delta Separations to give us the latest from Delta. As a longtime processor prior to joining the Delta team, he gave us his go-to SOPs for cold centrifugal extraction, as well as a ton of general extraction knowledge. This week takes us to the next stage, which is the filtration process. Filtration is a difficult concept to wrap your head around. There's a lot of theorizing that goes on when you start to try to pick it apart. It certainly has a lot of feel to it, and it's hard to collect hard data about how and why things are happening. If you're the local filtration expert at your facility, that's certainly worth a feather in your cap. But if you're the filtration expert at the filter company, that makes you a complete boss in my book. And that's exactly who we have with us today. Maria Peterson from Scott Laboratories is joining us on the show to discuss filtration. She's by far the most knowledgeable person I've ever spoken to on the subject. And I learn something new from her every time I get her on the phone. So without any further ado, Maria Peterson, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on today. Tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming the filtration expert at Scott Laboratories. I I was a winemaker for 10, 10, I think about 10 years all over the world and um, kind of floated from one hemisphere to the next to be able to do two harvests in the same year and get as much um, uh, experience as I could because, you know, you can go to university and get a degree in something, but then once you leave there, you really quickly find out that you know nothing. You know very little about the practicalities um, of making wine and getting something into a bottle. Uh, you know that, that is that is quite the thing. So then, my uh, journey eventually uh, led me uh, to the U.S. and I um, met the folks at Scott Labs and you know, the conversation started like, we need this person that can talk to other customers about filtration. And I'm like, oh, good luck. That's a that's a gray area where you can pretty much get lost. Because the thing about filtration is that it's designed to make you feel insecure. If you don't feel a little bit insecure about it, you're there's probably something wrong with you if it doesn't maybe challenge you every now and then. Yeah, yeah. It was those <laughs> so, challenges that actually ended up having me get you on the phone for the first time. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> call, in, call in with enough nerdy questions and you eventually get escalated up to top tier support, which is, uh, which is Maria and team. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's what happens is nobody else will take the call. They're like, they don't want to say, we just don't know. You know, that's what I really like about the, the team at Scott Labs, that they're always looking to learn and to figure it out. And to not tell the customer, hey, man, sorry, you're on your own. It's going to be either we'll we'll get back to you on this one. We have to kind of ask some people because 
I certainly don't have all the answers, but I know a lot of much smarter people than I to get me those answers. And then kind of, because there are such smart people, uh, translated to normal people such as you and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's had to have been kind of an interesting path for you jumping into this new market uh, with a whole new set of challenges that are, are not the same challenges that you find in the wine industry. Definitely. It keeps it, definitely keeps it interesting and keeps you thinking on your feet and kind of looking at, you know, the same old thing that you may have sold to a winemaker um, or a brewer and going, oh, wait, wait a minute. This is not for, this is not the way they're, they're not going to be fermenting something. So now we're not necessarily dealing with things like yeast and bacteria. Now we're looking at all those lovely colloidal materials like lipids and waxes and things that like to show the <laughs> show up when you when you chill them for example yeah yeah exactly so some of the players that are in the extraction space are there because they really went after it and targeted it and others kind of have fallen into it um I'd imagine already being established in the beverage space, you guys fall into the fell into it category. Uh, tell me what some of the conversations were like when you guys realized over there that you had a whole new group of customers. Well, it was it was like, oh, wow, these guys. It was like I was excited because, um, you know, having um, worked in the wine industry on the East Coast, it was, it, and, and in the Bible Belt at that, it was always, you know, alcohol in many of the parts in the Southeast is still a no-no. And it was, um, you know, you have to, uh, you have to go back to church if they found you drinking, for example. So I was always preaching like, no man, prohibition has been over for like 80 years. It's time, it's time to like, let go of those beliefs. And all of a sudden, in California, I found myself talking to people from all over the country that just had this, you know, it, it felt like they were finally allowed to have the conversation and not feel um, like you're in danger of somebody listening in and being like, you're going to jail for having cannabis, you know, kind of thing. So I found it really refreshing. And then the the people that... Um, the people in your space, they are um, mostly extremely knowledgeable about extraction and can spin lovely biochemistry stories about things that, that just makes me marvel. Um, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a really great group of people with, uh, with a good energy of, of exploration. And, and they're, they're all used to wearing a lot of hats uh, because for so long, you really couldn't make the phone calls to ask questions. So I think a lot of the people that, that gravitate towards this field are people that are good at wearing a lot of hats and good at figuring things out or have a really great group of friends that they can ask questions of. But for the most part, I think really is just people that are the jack of all trades that is going to be able to make it happen. Right. That said, it's like it's a fun group of people to hang out with and to interact with and to problem solve with because they're skilled at it. Definitely. I find that um, uh, most of the, the calls I get is from really uh, open-minded people that can think laterally. And they um, normally, which is a funny one, is they would call and say, you know, this is what I'm looking for. 
this is how I'm going to do it. I, they already have an idea of what they want. Um, the ones that don't are like, what, what are the other folks doing? And it's kind of like, this is the, the middle road. You know, this is kind of what most people are doing. But some of the others are very, um, they're very sure of what they want. And they would very rarely call back to say something didn't go well. And um, this is something where winemakers, ah, oh, poor winemakers, I have to kind of uh, talk behind their back a little bit, but they will call immediately and say, how did this go wrong? I can't make this mistake again because it's not working. Help me figure it out. And with the, um, like I call you guys, the botanical extract uh, uh, community. Yeah, yeah. I learned real quick that that was the code word I had to use when I called in if I wanted to talk to anybody over there. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. If uh, if you didn't say botanical extracts and you said cannabis, we got, we got shoved off to another vendor. <laughs> <laughs> so I And I don't want to make the people that are extracting peppermint oil feel bad about not having... CBD and THC in their setup, you know. <laughs> so, so it really is botanicals. <laughs> exactly, and and so, and so, yeah, they they would um, they would say this is what we want, and and they you guys really call back and say this didn't go so well, and the feedback is always appreciated because we don't learn if we don't, uh, you know, hear back. But um, on the other hand, I'm always also very grateful not to hear back because I assume you no news is good news. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, the IP in the cannabis industry is, is very protected. Um, everybody kind of holds everything they're doing close to their chest. So I'd imagine, you know, walking into a winery, it's, it's an older craft and a lot of the tricks of the trade are already kind of out there. So it'd be easier to get straight answers about, you know, what they're doing and, and then figure out how you can help them. For but, sure. But they're, there may be a little bit of resistance in uh, in the sharing of information in in our field. I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and it's really, you know, uh, my goal when I talk to someone is really to try and figure out how can we make your life easier in the long term. We're not just looking at how is next week going to go, but we're looking at if it's something like as simple as a flow rate or a batch size. Um, how is it looking now, and then. If you were to dream or you were to project, would that change? And if it changes, how would it change? All right. So circling back a little bit to the fact that Scott kind of fell into the extraction space because they already had a great product that also worked for ethanol extraction. Um, now that the lenticular filters kind of become a an industry standard, uh, there are some people that are directly marketing filters to the extraction space and really nipping at your heels. What are you guys doing as a company to uh, hold your ground there? Are you marketing any products directly to the extraction space or making any product design decisions um, that are extraction focused? Right. Very good question, because it, it's a little bit about supply and demand. And it's a it's a tough one, because if the majority of the industry says we want a one micron lenticular module, um, but you chill something down and you you know bring a, a number of colloidal materials and components out of solution, is it the most efficient to go so tight so quickly or would it be more efficient to go slightly coarser and get a better throughput 
Um, and so if the industry comes at you and says, no, 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 we want a one micron because this is what the company that sells our extraction equipment uses and we just want to do what they do, then having the conversation is kind of like, mm, it's better to wait until the student is ready for the teacher to appear uh, so that when they run into um, it's time to be more efficient, how can we use, how can we get more out of our filter media? Then you can say, oh, well, let's look at what are you trying to remove? Um, these are the efficiencies. Are you, you know, th then there's a lot more questions coming up. So it's, it's, so it's two pronged. It's being there when the industry says, this is what we want. And we've already decided um, about this. And then after a while, when there's already been a little bit of this going on, then you can say, oh, well, if you want to be able to remove more of these components consistently, maybe let's try another grade and see how that goes. And let's take notes and, and see if that is even relevant. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, what would you say that your most common product sold into the extraction space is? So typically, this is how uh, the majority of, of our customers would go. They would depending on their extraction equipment, they would or uh, would not need an extra, something like a bag filter housing or a screen just to pick up rogue um, plant material that might've come through. Um, and then you would go, then you want dirt holding capacity. Like, so if, you, if we look at the term dirt holding capacity, um, we're looking at kind of a media that has a lot of, uh, let's call it a labyrinth, right? So it's like a tortuous path that these, that the liquid has to go through for all these um, particles to be caught. And the, the reason why lenticular media is so popular is because it's a cellulose-based media that carries a charge. So you have a three-pronged method of retention. You have surface uh, filtration so whatever gets stuck on the surface will then build up a layer and as that layer whether it's visual or visible to the naked eye or not that will keep on building up as the filtration progresses and that builds more surface area as you go yeah your, um, your then, filter quality ends up being a better quality filtration towards the tail end of that media exactly but, uh, man does it take a lot longer right exactly and then you have um, you have charge in this media. You know, um, if there is a filter aid in that media, like diatomaceous earth or perlite or resin, those all contribute to charge that will then hold on to a counter charge. So that's the second mode. And you don't have that kind of charge with with things like a bag filter, uh, which is normally polypropylene felt. That that's not going to hold on to things that have a charge unless they're a big enough a particle to just not get through. Um, but most colloids are like so squishy and soluble, they can, they can get where they need to be if there is no charge. Um, and then you have just really that tortuous path that's just holding onto particles because literally they can't get through. So that, that's why lenticular in, in, in you know, particular is so good because you have the same charge that you would on a, on a filter sheet, but it's in this modular form, which is a closed system. So there are a bunch of advantages um, to it. 
Um, and we'll probably get into that a little bit in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll jump into the technicals here in a minute. Um, but I think I just learned something from you. Uh, are you saying that the actual colloidal materials are being caught by the charge more so than the actual filter mesh size? Is that accurate? That is exactly accurate. So it really is um, fascinating if you look at diatomaceous earth in, in, in particular, you've got these uh, fossilized algae is really what it is. And it is uh, mined. So it, that sounds all very like cloak and dagger, right? If you think about it, it's like, hey, we're using a historical material to filter this, but it's still one of the most efficient ways to break charge. And you get diatomaceous earth um, used for all kinds of things in different grades. So the grades that are used in making filter media is some of the purest. It's a very small amount that's normally used in, in this kind of filter media, but with lenticulus specifically, it's the same media as filter sheets, but it's just put in this modular form. All right, that's some good information. Um, let's uh, let's jump around a little bit, and we'll get into the technicals of uh, of a lenticular filter. Uh, before we get too techy on on how exactly it works, uh, can you give us a rundown of what a lenticular is, what it looks like? We can get into the bell housing and the cartridge, and just the the general function of of, of what it's going to do. Sure. So, interestingly enough, lenticular. And not some people call in and say, we want one of those ventricular filters, like it's something to do with a heart attack. And that's definitely not what it is. It's the word lenticular comes actually just from the simple word lentil. And if you look at a, a good lentil, um, it's got that convex shape. And literally a lenticular filter, if you open it up and you look at the inside, it looks like these little lentils that are stacked on top of each other. Um, and each lentil is uh, is really two filter sheets that were cut into a circular form, and between them there is a a, a, a layer of normally it's polypropylene food grade uh, plastic that keeps these two layers from collapsing onto each other. So if we look at the if you look at how it looks, and you can see it, there's a video. Um, on our website, it doesn't really show the insides, but you guys have the best instructional videos on your website, by the way. Just to interject for a second, <laughs> it's it's just it's fantastic. It's uh it's a step by step, very very informative. Like there's there's no question about exactly what you should be doing, and whoever did the voiceover is just awesome. Yeah, they make you feel calm, and you've got this, and it's going to be fine, and just relax. <laughs> exactly. Uh, for for the listeners that can't click on the video right now, can you uh, can you finish describing what the actual bell housing and the rest of the filter uh, actually looks like, so they can they can visualize it if they're driving along in their car or something? I'm definitely a visual person, so for me describing it, you might be like, "No, this woman is talking science fiction." So well, from, from, from a far less, uh, less technical standpoint and just, uh, just talking about it sheerly from, from the way it looks, it looks almost as if you were to take, um, you know, two Frisbees and put them open side to open side, uh, face to face like that, uh, and then take that and then stack 
10 of that combo on top of each other or eight of them or something. Um, and that looks like the, uh, the module. And then you would take this module uh, and that goes inside a bell housing, which uh, kind of looks like, like R2-D2 with, with some legs on it. <laughs> um, it's a you know, flat bottom with a gasket and then uh, like a rounded uh, bell that, that, that fits down over and clamps down um, to, to form your lenticular filter. Can, can you pick it back up from there? That is an ex- excellent way of putting it, definitely. The, the lenticulars are very scalable, right? So you can get them very for very tiny amounts. So I'm talking less than, if you were having to filter less than 50 gallons in a day, then there are really small housings with, with uh, little modules that don't necessarily, is not necessarily constructed like these um, ones that you describe. They can come all the way from a, 12 inch is a very typical size. So 12 inch means it's like 12 inch in diameter and it can have a certain amount of these cells or lentils inside. And, and um, a typical standard 12 inch module is about 1.8 meters squared of internal surface area, uh, which is the equivalent of about 12 or 13 sheets in a 40 by 40 centimeter plate and frame filter. Just to give you, if you have, if you've worked with a plate and frame filter, then you can kind of go back and say, oh, that's quite a lot of surface area and a very small footprint. One time only. One time only have I worked with one of those. And then immediately it was like, I'm getting this place a lenticular. Never again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you waste a lot. And, and, you know, sheet filtration has its place, but it is a... 130-year-old technology, and that was really popular right after World War II, but we've kind of moved on since then. So thank goodness lenticulars came because it has saved a lot of foul language from being released into the world, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so to get back to that lenticular, if you look at some of the housings on the market, you can get anything as small as a 12-inch one high, which means... This 12-inch housing can contain one module only, um, all the way to 12-inch four high. So you can use different height center posts to use one, two, three, or four in that housing. So our uh, video online, we're using two modules with a two high post in a three high housing. So it's very scalable. If you decided or you knew you were going to just do small batches um, and you, you know, you then we would recommend that you just stay with a, a shorter housing. You cannot, for example, with, with our products, you cannot order a housing and then just buy a separate bell to go higher. You have to buy the bell with the, the footing um, or the base. Um, and then the only way to adjust is to use different height center posts because that's how the, the housing is pressure tested at the factory. So. You don't want to um, that kind of mold to each other. So that is that is how that works. And then you can go all the way up for bigger production. You can switch to a 16-inch uh, module. So you can go all the way from a 12-inch one high to a 16-inch four high. So you have to have a 16-inch housing to fit 16-inch media in. But if you knew that you were going to expand pretty quickly, you can always start out using 12-inch media in a 16-inch housing. 
which is very cool if you if you knew that you weren't going to have a separate line or um you just wanted to have you know one production line then you could um definitely there's lots of options for scaling up in the same housing all right yeah, I could say from experience, I've installed many of these things in, in a bunch of different locations and a 12 inch one high will put in some work. Um, you know, m- most of these operations that are out there are not going to need more than a, a 12 inch one high lenticular. Right. Um, you know, if you, if you're getting into to larger scale hemp or, or you're doing it real big, um, you may go too high, but, um, you know, really like I said, the, the, the 12 inch one high will, will definitely do some work. Um, I should mention you can, I, I love the fact that you can, if you do get a, a too high bell housing, you can change that center post around and put just one cartridge in there. If you should choose to, you got a little bit more, uh, more room for fluid in the bell housing, but, um, you, you, you can certainly take a too high, uh, unit and, and use it with, with one, uh, module in there um so would you say that that the lenticular filter is the most common thing that you sell into the extraction industry would you agree with that yes i think it's a very uh, you know if you look at the cost of a housing and you look at um the media and uh really how much you can get out of it it just makes very good financial sense to consider lenticular i will say that I always tell whether it's a brewery, a winery, a distillery, um, you know, filtration is quite personal. It is um, like buying shoes. It has to it has to feel right and it has to fit right. Um, you might be in a unique situation where it doesn't work for you. You might have a method of extraction where you're looking for something completely different. Your end product is not going to be what your neighbor makes. And um, so definitely don't feel intimidated by exploring all the options um, because it is, uh, we're lucky to have lenticular filtration in this day and age. And it has gone through quite a few um, different changes. For example, uh, they are the, the, the first uh, version of lenticular that came out was actually a twist and lock, right? So the, the ones that we currently sell is a flat gasket uh, housing and we call it a flat gasket uh, module. So they sit uh, flush on the base and you have a center post to tighten down the pack so that there's no, um, you know, bypass. But the first version that, that came out is actually twist and lock. So uh, both sides of the module doesn't look the same. The bottom part will twist and lock into place. It's got locking tabs on the bottom. Um, and it has two O-rings, which you can imagine if you have a 12-inch four-high uh, housing and you don't have a center post here, each module uh, locks into the one below it. So you have the top of that uh, module looks different than just a regular flat gasket. Um, and so the, the the pack tends to move like seaweed under the ocean um, while you're filtering in these, this kind of swaying of the media which is quite hard on those o-rings um on each module so if you do happen to have a twist and lock housing you'll know what i'm talking about if you see one on the used market 
keep looking <laughs> because um, although um, they are out there and they're very well priced, the media is sometimes a little bit more difficult to come by and they are not uh, necessarily as regenerable as the flat gasket ones. So you always just look for C-type or flat gasket and stick with that, stay away from from the S type, if you if you can help it, unless it's such a good price that you just can't, you know. Yeah, in, in my opinion, it's just not worth it. Even no, if it's, it's a good deal, it's it. it's not worth it. Um, I, I've seen some of the competitors' stuff, and the uh, the the twist and locks just don't seem like they have that good of a, a seal. And your uh, your compression seal is definitely solid. Yeah. The other thing to to consider is also the temperature that you're filtering at. You know, you're. Most of most of the processes, unless I'm just not with the program, is done very cold. So if you um, look at those O-rings, they're mostly silicone, and unless it was a special order and it was something else like EPDM, or um, you, you can specify uh, normally with the with the factory. But some of these O-rings are not necessarily meant to be going down to such sub-zero temperatures. So it, they just shrink. Um, with the flat gasket, um, it doesn't really matter because the, the critical part here is to lock down that housing. And if you look at the video, you'll see there's like a, a hold down device that includes this spring. Um, and you'll see in our, in our video, um, it's not tightened down like all the way, because we assume that we're going to be filtering wine, the coldest maybe, I don't know, maybe if it's something like cider, you might be filtering a little bit colder, um, but nothing close to what you guys are filtering at. So definitely always tighten down all the way and then do a half turn back just to give it a little bit of play. But this is something um, that is usually not going to be shown because we don't assume to be filtering uh, wine at that temperature. You need somebody to make some content for you to go out to the cannabis industry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. In the, yeah, yeah, I'll let you know if I find somebody. Yeah, that would be cool. I was like, we need a video for, for this segment so that we can, you know, even if it's just a, a cute, uh, I, I still want Japanese anime. I think that would be very cool. But yeah. Yeah, as long as you can get that guy that voices over the uh, the other instructional videos to to voice over your anime. All right. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, no, we can find him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, so so circling back a little bit uh, to to the construction of your your filter chain or your filter skid. Um, basically, exactly what happened to me was what you described earlier, where uh, the, the company that sold me my extraction equipment sold me on the idea of using a one micron reticular. Right. Uh, so I said, okay, great, let's buy that. Um, and then I was having to change the, uh, the modules out on that much more frequently than, than I you know, thought I should or than I, than I wanted to, for sure. And, and really, the more I beat my head against the wall and more times I called into Scout Labs, uh, I realized what I needed was uh, something in front of that lenticular one micron to catch some of the bigger yes. stuff. So uh, what, I, what I needed was a bag filter, really, uh, to get a lot of the particulate out of there and not waste the, uh, 
the the filtration capacity of the one micron on on much larger particles that can be pulled out in a bag filter. And and then in my travels, I've noticed uh, some people are doing two. I've even seen one facility with three, which to me seems like a little bit of overkill. Um, but yeah, like a, a couple of bag filters in front with staged mesh sizes uh, seems to be a, a good solution. Let's talk about putting something like that together. Um, let, let's say you got one bag filter uh, in front of a one micron lenticular filter. How would you stage that? What would you use for your uh, your bag filter filter mesh size? Okay, very good question because it's going to this is this is something that they don't teach you. You can't call necessarily somebody in the in the bag filter world and get you'll get five different answers from five different people most of the time. Just because that's why I call you, <laughs> right? And and so what I learned from asking uh, these kind of questions and and also from my colleagues that have since retired and you know what they've forgotten, I still haven't learned in many cases. But this is why we ask questions and stay inquisitive. Um, what is a very good thing to remember when it comes to a bag filter is that um, you always want to look for something that's welded, not stitched. Because if you go for a stitched bag, where the stitching is, you, you have 200 micron holes, right? So um, to give you an idea, the human eye, naked eye, can't really see much smaller than between 30 and 40 micron. Um, so anything less, you're not going to be able to judge by just eyeballing it. Um, so when you do purchase bag filters, make sure that it's glazed because the glazing helps um, that the the filter media, as it breaks down over time, won't migrate to the next filter. So uh, a glazed, uh, felted polypropylene is a very good bag. It's a very um, standard bag to use, but definitely welded, not stitched. Um, and then what we see most of the time is that a five micron bag is normally a good place to start and to figure out, is this good? Or do, should I have something a little bit coarser? Is this one clogging up too soon? Or what is the, what's the deal here, right? So judge that five micron if you need to go a little bit tighter to say a one micron, which is most of the time the tightest you can go um, in a bag filter. It's, it's nominally rated. So that just means if it's rated at one micron, the majority of the pores in that bag will retain particles of one micron. But there's going to be holes that are much bigger and much smaller. So this is just kind of a cut through. If they had to kind of measure the, the pore sizes under an electron microscope, the majority of them more or less would be one micron around there. So this is why you see one person's one micron is not the next manufacturer's one micron. So the one micron bag is not going to retain what a one micron lenticular retains completely different media, completely different mode of filtration. So definitely when you see porosities, don't take them very seriously, especially with bag filters. If you stay with one manufacturer for the whole time, are you going to get a big variance in the, in the porosity of the filters? So that's a good question. Very good question because certain manufacturers allow themselves a kind of a play, right? So 
So the, the larger the porosity, the more margin they allow themselves. The tighter you get, the more exact it's going to be. So if you look at a, a bag filter, 200 micron is going to be really what we sell to brewers that want to kind of catch dry hop material after making a super hazy IPA, for example, to give you you IPA drinkers out there an idea of what 200 micron would do. So that allows some of the haze to pass through, but catches the, the big particulate. Exactly. And um, with this uh, one micron or five micron bags that you guys will be using, you're going to catch material, but because it's so cold, you're going to have some of those um, particles stay in the bag because they just can't, they're holding onto whatever they can. So as that housing uh, potentially builds up more material and potentially goes up a few degrees in temperature, that might change it again. Um, so, so solubility of colloidal material changes as temperature changes. That's something I think people overlook a lot uh, because, you know, you let the filter warm up, you let your bell housing warm up, you let all the stuff that you have been filtering out with this filter warm up. And then uh, the next time you push material through it, uh, yeah, your material's cold, but all that stuff's warm in there. So you're going to get a little bit of these undesirables pushed on through the filter with this, uh, with the new batch of material that you're, you're pushing it on through with. Yeah, that's very important. And uh, because we can't see it, it doesn't mean it's not happening. <laughs> Filtration is magic for that uh, reason. Um, if you were very analytical and you had the ability to, to um, uh, measure turbidity as you went, of course, turbidity um, will tell you about the percentage of suspended solids in your product, but it won't tell you much about the colloidal content. So that that means filtrability isn't very dependent on turbidity. Um, it'll give you a very good indication, but it won't. It doesn't always line up. If it did, I probably wouldn't have this job. <laughs> and nobody would swear when they filtered. It would be probably a much less interesting world for me, but I'm happy to be in it. Anything that's like a, a finite, uh, definite, quantifiable answer is is a little bit less interesting to me, a little bit less art, more science. Uh, I kind of like, uh, I kind of like things that you have to theorize about a little bit and, and, and get in there and, and kind of make decisions based on what you think's happening in there absolutely, uh, and what you feel like's happening in there and then, and then check your results and see how you did. Yeah. And, and with the, the, you said the word they feel because it really is, you really, after a while start to trust your gut, you know, and, you look at something, you're like, does this feel right? Does this normally when I ask myself during wine production, is it really a good idea to filter today? Sometimes I'd be like, you know what? No, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to go work in the vineyard. This just doesn't feel right. All right. So circling back a little bit, going out of your extraction vessel into a storage tank uh, or a keg or wherever your 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 tincture goes after you've done your extraction now you're going to take it from there and either push with inert gas or pump with a double diaphragm uh, explosion proof pump through your bag filter 
um, usually going through like one and a half inch tri-clamp hoses and into your filter. Talk to us a little bit about what that fluid flow looks like. Okay, so you, you can either put the bag filter between your extractor and the keg and just get it done right there and then, you know, only focus on the lenticular after that. If you're going to put the a bag filter between your keg and as part of the complete filter train, the, the, the flow rate is going to be whatever you want it to be, right? So if it's a standard number two bag filter housing, which is the biggest one, uh, the bag that fits in there is approximately seven inches by 32 inches. So it, it basically just um, has quite a lot of space. Uh, if you just ran water through there, you could run uh, 75 gallons a minute or up to 150 gallons a minute um, of flow rate. So you can go really fast. Uh, so you are just going to go through the bag. It, it actually goes through the top of the bag and out the bottom. Um, so it's going to be, if you're pushing with gas, it's not going to be very fast. You're never going to see a differential pressure over that large bag filter housing if you had a small bag filter housing you you might see a little bit more pressure i don't expect to see much um if you're pumping it's a different story because now we're talking how big is the pump how much can you slow it down um if it's uh yeah it really just depends on depends on your source of energy if it's the gas it's going to be slower but more even if it's a pump and it's a, a, a diaphragm pump, as you mentioned, uh, one little pointer there is to always make sure you have a dampener on that pump. Because if you want to filter through a lenticular with a pump like that, it's best to have an even action. And if you don't have the dampener, you have this peristaltic action that's going to force things through the filter that you don't necessarily want to force through. Yeah, you want that gentle, just enough pressure to get what you want through, through exactly. without uh, agitating too much else. Yeah. Um, so there's a thing called, uh, you could buy the, the fancy dampener, but there's a, a thing called the standpipe, uh, which is a little hack that I like to build, uh -huh. um, that you can use for these double diaphragm pumps. It's basically, you just take uh, a, a T, um, a tri-clamp T, uh, after the double diaphragm pump, and uh, on the side, the, the odd side out, that 90s up, uh, you face that, that vertically headed up towards the ceiling and then uh, clamp on another piece of sanitary spool to the top of that. So as that double diaphragm pump chugs back and forth, um, it is both pushing down the line and also pushing up this standpipe. Uh, you know, probably on a one and a half inch, I'd probably go two or three feet up. Um, so you're filling the standpipe so that now when the diaphragm pump chugs back to refill again and then push the next batch forward, instead of all of the fluid that's in that line uh, ahead of the pump coming back with that diaphragm as it chugs back, now as that chugs back and creates a little bit of a void, the, the gravity pushing down on the fluid that has filled that standpipe will now fill that void. Uh, and then the next time the pump chugs forward, it, it just goes ahead and pushes it forward. So it does a lot of dampening on its own. Uh, I think some of these fancy dampeners uh, will, uh, will have like 
basically the same thing except for they have a a diaphragm up in the at the top of the standpipe looking thing um, that will will compress a little bit as well. But uh, yeah, it's a good hack and, uh, and it's a cheap way to go about things with stuff you got in the shop. Very cool. And and I like the word fancy because on some of the red wine pumps we have in the industry, they have one of these standpipes on them and they look fabulous. It looks it looks like steampunk, you know, it's very cool <laughs> and very gentle. It's very gentle on the extraction. All right. So back to the process here. We're we're in a holding vessel uh, yes. that we drained out of our extraction equipment. And now we're going to go through the bag filter and the lenticular filter uh, with either gas or a pump. Uh, that said, do you need to pump through the bag filter into another vessel and then through the lenticular with another pump or another pressurized means? Or uh, in your opinion, can you use one pump or, or pressure to, to go through both filters? I've seen it done both ways. I've done it both ways. Uh, and there's some, some pros and cons to both. So what's your take on that? Yeah, very good question. We, we, get, we get this question and some of our customers prefer to go from the bag into a holding vessel and then re-chill. And they have a holding vessel where they might be um, doing you know, a few different batches of extraction where they're not just doing 50 gallons that day, but they might be doing 50 gallons an hour and their holding tank is maybe 300 gallons. Then once they're ready, they're going to do the whole 300 gallons through either the bag and the lenticular or just the lenticular. So this is, I'm not sure if they're trying to chill again because they want to bring more things out of solution. Um, for the most part, it's absolutely no problem to just go straight from the bag through the lenticular and sometimes a second lenticular or a cartridge, um, depending on whether you want a carbon step for removing residual color and flavor um, or just if carbon is your thing. <laughs> so um, both of those are completely fine. Uh, it just depends on... You know, if you're going through a really big lenticular and two lenticular housings in a row, the nitrogen might not be strong enough, depending on what pressure you have. With a pump, you can go through a bag and two lenticulars or a lenticular to a cartridge housing in line, as long as that pump is sized appropriately. All right. So get the right size pump and you're in, you're in good shape. Uh, the, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, cross-flow filtration. There's some really, really big systems that are getting released right now uh, to process tens of thousands of pounds of hemp in a day. And uh, the first thing I said when I saw those was, man, what kind of filters do those things use? Uh, and how do they keep them clean and running? So uh, upon doing a little bit more research, I, I discovered that they were using cross-flow filtration. And, you know, I did a little bit of research about that online, uh, but really just said, you know, hey, when I when I talk to Maria uh, for the interview, I'm going to ask her about cross-flow filtration and how that works. So uh, can you give us the breakdown about uh, what that's all about? Sure, sure. So, so if you look at the way that flow direction goes with something like a sheet or lenticular or a bag filter or just a regular cartridge. If you have 
you know, if you hold out your hand flat, the product's going basically from one side to the other side. So 100% perpendicular. And um, with cross flow, if you hold out your hand, the flow direction is actually tangential. So it, it moves parallel with that filter media and it gets pulled through from the other side. Um, and, and so this means as it moves across the membrane surface, because the cross flow is made of membrane material, it's not necessarily absolute. Um, but when you go, you know, with the length of the membrane surface and it gets pulled through, what, me what it means is that the membrane surface gets cleaned constantly. So with a perpendicular movement, you have this buildup of, of uh, solids on the one side and it kind of, you know, starts to contribute to the filtered depth. Um, with cross flow, it's not. Um, if you look at an element and there is a, a under equipment on our website, there is a, uh, you can search for cross flow and kind of not really see what it looks like inside, but you'll see it's these vertical columns that are just standing there. But each one of those columns, if you cross cut it, you'll see all these little tubes kind of look like spaghetti. And each of those spaghettis are a membrane. And so you have liquid moving amongst them and through them. So if you if you take something like a pen and you look at the pen, then the product is going from the outside. It's moving tangentially, but it's getting pulled through into the middle. So the outside of the pen is the dirty side and the inside of the pen is the clean side. And then it takes the uh, retentate, which is all the, the dirty particles, and it puts it into a separate uh, outlet. And that's where all that goes. So you can. You can pretty much get everything back, um, not like with lenticular where it stays in the filter media and the only way to get it out if you really wanted all that stuff out is to dissolve it um, with a solvent again. And then if it's solid, then it stays there. Okay, so, gotcha. So that's why they're using these big cross flows on these mega hemp systems because it's it's a quick, easy clean. Yeah. Uh, you just You basically just open it up and pull out all of the stuff that it filtered off and then uh, pop it closed and you're, you're ready to roll again? Yeah, and pretty much these things are normally semi-automatic or fully automatic. So once the system gets to a certain uh, uh, pressure, it will shut down and it will start a cleaning cycle. Um, and then once it's cleaned and it's pushed everything out, then it will start filtering again if it's fully automatic. Um, which kind of scares me having to be so full uh, hands on with lenticular and you have to watch everything. These things can just filter for 24 hours. You can have an app. It will let you know when it's stopped or if something's gone awry. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And then with Crossflow, of course, you're not spending money on media consistently like you are lenticular. So really it's about scaling. These systems are not inexpensive. No. Um, and of course, it does have maintenance involved. Um, but so you're not, you're, you're probably saving on labor and you're saving on consistently spending money on media. But, uh, you know, depending on what the membrane is made from, I think if you look at the dairy industry, they use cross flow, um, but they're filtering out big things like protein and also fats and things like that. And I think they use a lot of ceramic 
membranes. Um, and then stainless steel is like, you can chemically clean it very harshly if you needed to, depending on what you were filtering, you know, because you've, you're dealing with a lot of oils. So it's, um, if you have ever tried filtering your, your extract, and I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners probably started out there. They use just a regular polypropylene cartridge, which is basically taking a bag filter and making it, you know, 20, 20 of those inside of each other and try to filter through that. Those layers trap oil and they, they don't take well to, to this change in turbulence. No, I certainly trashed a few of those while I was trying to figure figure everything out. <laughs> yeah, right. And then... Then you do that and you're like, oh, wow. And, and pretty much with filtration, um, when it comes to oils, that media does not do so well with it. Really, the cellulose-based medias are pretty amazing um, for the smaller scale. And then once you scale up and you're getting into the, the big leagues where spending a million or two on a, on a very large, expansive cross flow is fine, then that is your... That is your uh, bag. <laughs> really, so much of this stuff is is specific to your individual operation. That the person you're going to be wanting wanting to talk to is the one that sits there and actually listens to to what you have to say. Absolutely. Uh, you know, some operations are going to require one of these big fancy cross flow filters, but ninety nine point nine percent of the stuff that that I've seen out there is really doable with a lenticular and I'd say 90% of it's doable with a one high lenticular really you just be changing the cartridge on on, on some of them a little more often than others but, but really a, a bag filter flowing into a lenticular is is my go-to for filtration and uh and I love the the Scott Labs products which is why I was excited to get you on the phone today and uh, and talk to you all about what you had to offer well good I appreciate uh, that's so much, Jason, and uh, I've learned so much uh, from just you hearing you talk today because I realized that this is a this is not a, you know a once off. It it keeps on evolving and growing, and I'm very um, very excited about what you're doing on the show. That's really awesome. Well, thank you. I am too. It's been fun so far. Uh, if uh, if any of the listeners want to get a hold of you and talk to you about how your filters can help their operation, what's the best way to go about doing that? So we, um, I'm part of a department where we really want to help. Um, the the easiest is probably just to drop us a, an email, and the email address is seller, so c e l l a r at scottlab.com and that's Scott Lab singular, no S after it. Um, and that that's basically uh, our department is called the Beverage Integrity and Filtration Department, like BIF, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we add, uh, my colleagues are um, very uh, able and uh, we all are still learning about all things, but I feel like it's better if you email the group so that they can see um, and we learn collectively. I feel like these days uh, we're very reactive as a group. So getting you the right person through email and then setting up a phone call is probably the easiest. All right, Maria Peterson of Scott Laboratories. You got more filtration knowledge than anybody I know. I appreciate that. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers. All right. Thanks again to Maria Peterson for coming on the show and helping to break down the world of filtration. If you want to reach out to Maria and the rest of the brain power on her team over at Scott Labs to find out which filters are right for your operation, their email is seller at scottlab.com. That's C-E-L-L-A-R at S-C-O-T-T-L-A-B dot com. You can check out their website at scottlab.com or you can give them a ring at 707-765-6666. So due to some scheduling around the holidays and me trying to get the show off the ground, I recorded the first few interviews a little bit out of order from the way they aired. This interview with Maria was the very first time I had ever interviewed another human being. So a personal thank you from me to you, Maria, for bearing with me while I stumbled through some of the initial nerves and technicals of getting things rolling. Another big thanks to all the new listeners that we've got this week from all 14 countries you're tuning in from. You guys really made my week. As always, if you want to hear something specific on the show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure you follow the show on Instagram, the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys like the show, please subscribe. The more subscribers we get, the better guests I can book for you in the future. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we have Ray Van Linton, founder and CTO of TrueSteel on, to help us break down solvent recovery and falling film evaporators. I just recorded that interview with him, and he's got some awesome tips, which you definitely don't find in their user manual, for how to get more throughput out of your falling film. Thanks again for tuning in to The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon.